We're starting off the show today with a conversation somewhat connected to what I was just talking about. We're talking about trying to affect change here on a hyper-local stage. We're starting with a big study done on the city of Calgary. And the study is called Beneath the Surface. And it's a look at the layers of poverty in Canada and specifically here in Calgary. And the policy and research specialist who was the lead author of this study is joining me to kind of dig into this. Uh, Lee Stevens is, is my guest off the top of the show this afternoon. Lee, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Ted. Thanks for having me. Tell me about the study beneath the surface, the layers of poverty, right? And, and specifically focusing mm -hmm. on Calgary, Lee. I mean, how are we doing in this city regarding addressing poverty? Yeah, that was the question that I had last year around this time. <laughs> you know, I thought, well, how are we really doing? And, you know, um, our work is guided by the Enough for All strategy. And, you know, those different aspects of poverty translate nicely into domains of well-being. And so that's really what this report is about. It's about connecting, reducing poverty to um, community well-being and creating a city where poverty can exist and figuring out how we do that. Uh, so maybe I'll start off with some of the highlights. Um, let's start with employment. You know, employment is up, but wages are down. Uh, the majority of our job gains are in low-wage sectors like the service sector and retail um, and there are 41,000 individuals in Calgary considered working poor. For, um, sorry, and, did you say yeah. 41,000 Calgarians? Yeah, now, are considered working poor. Mm -hmm. Considered working poor, Lee. What, like, what, what does that mean? So this number includes those that are earning less than the low-income measure. That's just a way of measuring poverty. But they're earning less than the median wage. Uh, but they have earnings of $3,000 or more, and they're not students. So that's how we define that measure right there. Okay, and 41,000 Calgarians fall into that working poor category. Okay, uh, gotcha. Um, uh, regarding the well-being of people in this city, Lee, I mean, why, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing people here care about making sure everyone's okay, right? Yeah, for sure. Um that's something that we looked at uh, when we looked at community belonging. You know, we did interview people about this report because a lot of the Statistics Canada data is two years old. It's from 2020. So we wanted to interview people who were closest to poverty, community social workers, healthcare providers, and people on the lower end of the income spectrum. And when we asked them about uh, strong, supportive communities, we found that Calgarians are invested in the well-being of their neighbours. One of the themes that emerged is people living in poverty are having to step up and they help each other meet their basic needs, such as food and childcare. And so we do have uh, strong communities. That was a positive outcome. The cost of living that's um, uh, impacting all, well, all levels in, in, this, in our city right now, it must be especially impacting people who are living at the poverty line, right? Absolutely not even, I think uh, even uh, middle-class people it's affecting. And I'll start with housing. Um, so 81,000 Calgarians are 18% of our population. Uh, they need affordable housing. And we know that rental costs are rising fast, um, anywhere from 18 to 30% more. Um, we heard from people that it's really scary if you're out there looking for a new place to live. Some people are looking at spending an extra $600 a month. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that is significant for someone who, yeah, who is at that level of income already, an extra $600 a month. Yeah, we heard that from some person. And um, 
if you look at our vacancy rate, I mean, 2.7%, that's the lowest it's been in 14 years. Yeah. And so we do have rental subsidies, but when the vacancy rate is that low, you know, landlords can get really choosy. They might not want to rent to someone who has a rental subsidy, and so that subsidy doesn't really help them. Yeah, the stigmatism, yeah. right? And, and the, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. I get it. Okay. And it, r- r- Calgary, you know, compared to the rest of the country, like how do we rank... Um, you know, regarding uh, people living at the, you know, poverty line and and that type of thing. How, how do we rank compared to some of the other major cities? Um, so good and bad. So Calgary is the second most unequal city in terms of income. We're second only to Toronto. Um, on the other hand, Calgary stands out. I mean, we have a high asset resilience compared to the Canadian average. Um, so there's some positive aspects of our city. Um, high school graduation rate, we've, you know, historically haven't been very great in that area, but we're improving. When we compare the 2021 census to the last census, we have more kids that are finishing high school, and that's a good thing. Uh, you, you said asset resiliency. What, what does that mean, Lee? Yeah, it's people's ability to save for the future. Oh, um, I see. So, okay. Yeah, so could they weather a financial shock for at least three months? That's what that was. That's what that measure shows. Wow. And, and did your study, Lee, look at, um, you know, how the pandemic kind of impacted things? Or or did you started it probably about a year ago, so maybe post-pandemic, right? Yeah. You know, that was really tricky because a lot of the Statistics Canada data is 2020 data. So it doesn't reflect the year 2022 when we had really high inflation. Yeah. Although we do have those interviews and then we have um, some of the data from the Calgary Foundation's Quality of Life Survey um, that data it reflects 2022. So we had some data sources that were two years old and some that were more current. And so what we had to do was um, we had, I gathered a group of really smart people in the room and we would have meetings to make sense of everything. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a puzzle <laughs> putting together all the, the evidence that you have to kind of come up with conclusions. And I, I guess that leads yeah. to uh, to maybe a few final thoughts here, Lee, if you don't mind. So a, yeah. a couple of takeaways here, like people listening, what should they be taking away from this today? We need alternative measures to measure well-being. We so often look at GDP to see how successful we're doing. Um, GDP doesn't include volunteer hours or unpaid care work. So we need to use quality of life metrics to inform our decision-making. So that's one key takeaway. Another thing is that we can solve poverty. We have the metrics that we need. We just need to consistently measure them, but we know how far we need to go. And I think that what this experience has taught me is that it's not as complex as we thought. And, and we can get there. I'm absolutely confident we can. Oh, interesting. You mentioned not as complex because I've had lots of conversations on this show saying that it's very multifaceted. But is it getting a little, um, Do we re- have we narrowed down what we need to focus on? I think so. I mean, we had several measures of housing need when we first started this report. Um, but we um, nailed it down to one measure of housing need. Um, It's the same thing with food insecurity. There's several measures to measure that. So it's about standardizing our outcomes and having those really tough conversations. And then once you've standardized them and you've narrowed them down, then it is solvable and you, you do start to simplify that process. After we've simplified things, you know, looking, I'm looking six, 12 months down the road here, Lee, mm-hmm. is, is, is it all about funding then or is it about reallocating resources, you know? 
Uh, that's such a good question. I think in some ways it is about reallocating. Let's start with health. Our health system is very reactive. We spend more on health than we do on social. So I think some reallocation can happen there. And it's not just about funding. We also need the private sector um, to be involved. We need employers to be paying a living wage. That's another one of our um, advocacy outcomes. So it involves not just government, but all sectors. And down to an individual level, it involves us getting to know our neighbors yeah, and caring about them. Yeah, the human-to-human mm-hmm. contact, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Volunteer in your community if you're not doing so already. <laughs> Lee, if people want to do some follow-up on this, is mm-hmm. the study going to be published on a website or, or somewhere that people can kind of access it? Absolutely. If you go to enoughforall.ca, it's right there for you. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, Lee. I appreciate the chat. Thank you for this. Thank you, Ted. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a good day. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's, uh, that's Lee Stevens, policy and research specialist, and also the lead author of the Beneath the Surface uh, study, which is a look at the layers of poverty in Canada, and specifically here in the city of Calgary. Enough for all. Enoughforall.ca on that website. You can kind of really sink your teeth into us. But uh, Enough for All, of course, is an initiative from Vibrant Communities Calgary. And um, the layers of poverty, it's interesting. I'm glad to hear that Lee was saying that it's, it's getting simplified as to what we need to address, be it housing needs or food needs or childcare needs. And if it's all about reallocating resources instead of new money, I take that also as a positive. I mean, obviously, lots of work to do, but that, that's, 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 I, I take this as a positive kind of outcome with us being able to figure out exactly where we could target resources regarding the specific housing needs or the food needs or the childcare needs of people living, um, you know, at, at the poverty line. And the, the, the takeaway stat for me from this study is that almost 41,000 Calgarians are considered working poor. 41,000 Calgarians are considered working poor right now. That's the running number that we're sitting at here in the city of Calgary. Um, it, poverty, obviously, we heard Lee talking about how it's the, the, the impact of inflation is kind of reaching all the way right through middle class. And, and that's kind of where my family lands with, you know, my partner, she works, I work. But we feel it too. So I have to ask you, how, like, how have you changed things Like, what are you doing differently now to make ends meet? And welcome back. All right. We start off this hour of the program focusing on International Women's Day. That's what's happening tomorrow. So with that in mind, I'm going to chat with a professional who is actually being recognized for the amount of mentoring she does. Uh, Jennifer Stewart is joining me now on the show. Jennifer's a member of the Association of Science and Engineering Technology Professionals of Alberta, ASET, and works as a civil engineering technologist. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Ted. Uh, you got to let me know what ASET is. So what's the difference between ASET and, you know, APEGA? So ASET Oh, is- ASET, sorry. <laughs> Um, uh, organization representing approximately 17,000 science and engineering technologists and technicians in Alberta. Okay. And a, a peg is for, you know, engineers. So what's the difference yeah. between what you do as an engineering technologist and I guess as an engineer? Uh, the two professions are different, but we often work together on projects uh, 
together in harmony, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Okay, hand in hand. And obviously, they're both very, very science-based. And, yeah. and Jennifer, what drew you to that? Because, I like, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that still not like a male-dominated profession, you know? It is still a predominantly male-dominated field. Um, I was interested in innovation and problem solving, and that's what drew me to a career in technology. Yeah, and how, how did you know? Like, how did you know that that's where you wanted to go? Was Did you recognize it early, like in high school, or? Oh, no, it took me a long time to get there, Ted. <laughs> you sound like me, actually. I was the same <laughs> way before I figured out what I wanted to do. Um, but uh, obviously, I'm bringing you on the show today because you're, you're being recognized. You're winning the President's Award for Excellence in Mentoring. And, and so why did you decide to become such a, you know, prof proficient mentor, you know? I was already doing some mentoring within my organization and looking for a way to fill in my professional development log, which is a requirement of my designation with ASSET. And the mentoring program came up as an option, and I thought it would be a great fit. And so what exactly do you do as a mentor? I have conversations with my mentee, any questions that she has about her um, position within her organization and how to move her and progress her career forward. Interesting. So everything from like professional development to, you know, even day-to-day -day things? Not necessarily day-to-day. -day. We do work in two different industries, but more on the, the broad scale career choices she's making. Ah, okay. Kind of longer term goals. That's where you, yeah. that's where you kind of provide it. Is, is it just about being like a, a, like listening or do you also provide feedback and advice? It depends on what she's looking for. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. And how many mentees have you had over the years? Over the course of my career, I've probably had about 15 mentees. Oh, wow. And, and you still keep coming back. Why? It's really beneficial to both the mentee and the mentor. There's growth to be had on both sides of that relationship. When did you realize that, you know, that that you're good at it you know what i mean like when did you realize that you actually have a little knack for this uh i think it was when i received the award last year <laughs> so you just realized now <laughs> fair enough fair enough and i guess it gets back to when you i mean you did it as uh, you know kind of satisfying the requirement right for the profession and then you realize that you're you're actually quite i think you're being humble here jennifer <laughs> i think you're being humble here there must have been a turning point where you're like oh wow you know someone's listening to me and taking my advice uh i think it's when i can see individuals that i've mentored or mentored, sorry, take the advice that I've given them and use it in a situation without me having to reiterate that. And just to see that growth, I think, is really um, a reflection of my success as a mentor. Do you think yourself, like, do, you, do you consider yourself partially as a teacher then? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I guess there'd be a good comparison there, right? Yep. Yeah, okay. And so going forward, you've, you've you know, worked with 15 colleagues and, you know, kind of helped them and nudged them where they need to go or just listened at times. I mean, do you plan to stop? At this point, no. I'm, I think I'm hitting my stride. Nice. I love it. I love it. So people listening, they probably may be considering this, being some sort of mentor to a mentee. And, and mm -hmm. what advice would you give them? Uh, if you're considering being a mentor get involved. It is a fantastic opportunity and there's so much growth to be had on both sides. Yeah. So what have you learned from your mentees? Uh, 
my my growth um, has been focused on making sure that I've got tools in my toolbox to help my mentees. If I don't know how to do something, I'm going to find out how to do it so that I can teach others. Nice. Nice. I love that. If someone asks you about something, you'll learn it and then kind of provide advice. Yes. Interesting. Okay. And going forward, I mean, I mean, obviously, you're, you're encouraging people to get involved in the whole mentor-mentee relationship. Any other advice to pass along to everyone? Uh, always look for ways to grow, <laughs> whether it's for yourself or for somebody else. I love it. Good stuff, Jennifer. Thank you for the chat this afternoon. I appreciate this. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Ted. You're welcome. Have a good day. You as well. Okay, thank you. That, that's Jennifer Stewart, a member of the Association of Science and Engineering Technology Professionals of Alberta, ASSET, A-S-E-T. And she works as a civil engineering technologist, but she's mentored uh, 15 mentees and counting. No end in sight. That mentor-mentee relationship is, is, is awesome. And I, I think I have the bug for that because I do it more, though, um, you know, the kind of teaching bug, the, uh, you know, providing, uh, you know, gentle coaching tips and whatnot, just from when I was coaching hockey. You know what I mean? Did it for like 10, 11 years and loved it. It was so rewarding, so fulfilling for me to see the kids get it, you know, when you kind of try and teach them and, and offer them on how to read body language, for example, knowing that the defenseman's leaning this way. So you, you make a move that way. And, and then when they finally get it. Wow, does that ever sing? <laughs> does that ever sing in your mind? So I get it. Good for Jennifer, and congratulations to Jennifer Stewart uh, winning the 2022 President's Award for Excellence in Mentoring. Good for her. All right, the Rolling Stones, uh, just one of the huge names taking part in a big concert coming up this summer. So you got the Stones, you got Noel Gallagher. You got Pink on the bill as well. You've also got Adele. It's going to be a who's who of music. And these are just people who are confirmed so far, including... Yeah, you 2 Adele, Pink, Noel Gallagher, the Rolling Stones. There's also Sir Paul McCartney. I got to play more U2. Happens to be my favorite name on the lineup here. Um, it'll be a who's who of music taking part in a Live Aid style concert coming up on June 24th at Wembley Stadium. Uh, as, as I mentioned, Sir Paul McCartney is going to be there. Other names, have they've had invites out. No other names to kind of add to the list yet. But can music affect political change? Because the Live Aid style concert coming up this summer is for Ukraine. Is it possible to use the power of music? That's where I want to bring in Eric Alper on the show this afternoon. Eric, of course, is a music publicist. He's a host on Sirius XM. He's a well-known music commentator. Eric, thank you for coming on today. How are you? I'm good. How are you? You know, if they actually pulled this off, I will be so thrilled and so happy 
But so far, though, it, there's there's just a lot of confusion out there because where the story came from with the Sun newspapers in the UK, the headline says that they were to play, and then in the paragraph below, it said that they have been asked to play. Oh. So, so far, there's no confirmation yet from any of those artists or from Wembley Stadium. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah, what we do know is that the Glastonbury Festival is happening about two hours away in the UK with Guns N' Roses, uh, Elton John, Lizzo, and Arctic Monkeys during that same weekend from June 21st to 25th. So, um the artists are going to be around. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people in that area, so traffic will be a little bit nuts. But if this goes on, though, it it will be very interesting to see if anything can happen with the political pressure because uh, it's always been a wonky relationship that musicians have with politics. Yeah, is it ever, though, right? Is it ever? I'm just thinking back, Eric, you know, to 1985, and mm-hmm. um, I think you and I are in the same kind of age demo, right? Like, yep. I was a teenager then in 85. years old. Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, but, I mean, like, I remember Bad, you know, by U2. Yeah. I remember uh, Queen's performance, Freddie Mercury. And, of course, it all stuck in mind through music me the issue of famine in Ethiopia. So I guess there is a possibility that music can pull this off and affect political change. There's always that possibility, right? Yeah, especially when, you know, it all depends on how deep you want to get. You know, the, the very idea that anybody around the world can help the famine relief that was going on in Ethiopia and Africa and other places around the world was just to buy a single. It was just to buy a 45 record, and that's how they raised money. And then when Live Aid came along with an audience of just under 2 billion people across 150 nations and countries around the world, um, they had hundreds of billions of dollars that were being raised from it. So it can actually raise money and raise awareness. The idea, though, that it could change politics, that's something different. I've actually had the pleasure to work with with Bob Geldof, the organizer, for a number of years on his solo project projects and I've always asked him whenever he's here about just tell me stories about what it's like when you're in a dictator's office where like where does that money really go um, and unfortunately for a lot of um, even nonprofits here in Alberta everybody knows now that you know when you're trying to raise money you're trying to keep the cost down low so that the money gets to where it needs to go um, in the case of this potential concert it'll obviously go to you know the the absolute devastation in in the Ukraine, Um, but it will also, you know, maybe put a little bit of political pressure on, on, on Putin to be able to say, look, you you know, if this is still going on in June, you can't continue to do what you're doing. Yeah. What do you think it's going to take, Eric? I mean, you mentioned Glastonbury's just down the road, um, you know, that's happening right around that time. Big names are going to be around Wembley Stadium, you know. It's just a, a short helicopter ride to that stadium, you know. All right, do you think this is actually going to happen, or is this a bit of a pipe dream? No, I think it can absolutely happen. I, I think that there's there's enough satellites out there, um, there's enough streaming channels now that we're not really relying on three channels like we used to back in the days of 1985 and one of them happened to be much music <laughs> to to help spread the word all they have to do is just essentially post it on a news website and the rest of the world's media will be picking it up within moments of that um you know we don't have to necessarily think so much about 
our regular cable television channels anymore. Um, we can think about potentially airing this now on Netflix or HBO or, or you know, with your network, you, you can go across the country yeah. on, on you know, the music side of things. So it's certainly a little bit easier because of the conglomerates that the media owns now. One, you know, the Rolling Stones parent company also happens to own 45 different other magazines and newspapers. So it's quite easy to spread the word. I think it's another to actually get the right people behind it. But if the Rolling Stones or U2 or McCartney say yes to this, everybody else is going to follow. Yeah, so it's those big three, right? They could be the pivotal acts on this on this bill? I think that those are the ones. I, yeah. I think as big, of a, as big as Adele is, th- I think they're all taking a look at one another saying who else is going to be in because they obviously don't want to be the only ones um, you know, to proclaim this to be the world's biggest concert and them having the only headliners. There's a lot of people that are going to be involved in something like this. In order to put on a, a, even having the Rolling Stones on a multi-tier, multi-artist festival like this, they're going to bring in the size of a small city to help out. They're going to have the staff and catering and security and and transportation um, and to actually start building stages. So um, this isn't just a matter of calling up Mick and saying, hey, are you doing anything (laughs) on the 25th of June by chance? This is, um, uh, you know, they're going to want to know exactly who is involved and where the money is going because nobody wants any think to stick to them in a bad way afterwards yeah no doubt no doubt Uh, do you think eric that this could be put together with having many like mini stages around and just doing the whole satellite hookup type thing yeah, I mean, the the one thing that Live Aid did show people is that you could actually do uh, uh, concerts in various places around the world. I mean, there wasn't just Philadelphia and London, England in the UK. Um, there was a Live Aid type event going on here in Canada. There was one in Australia. There was one in New Zealand and, and so many other places around the world that did their own local um, ideas. So it absolutely is possible to do um, logistically Every time that you want to host another event like this in another country or another place outside of Wembley, you're looking at easily another 30 to $40 million worth of production costs. And, you know, the bigger that you get, the more that... The more that the criticism starts to come in, especially online, of like, who's paying for this? And are we just raising money for to get U2 that much bigger? Are we going to be raising money just so that Adele can have another worldwide audience? And I think people are a little bit more cynical now of where their money is going to, especially coming out of COVID, where artists, whether it was actors or actresses or musicians, tried to do the right thing, and it just came off as you know, really out of touch and out of step. So I think when it comes to something like this, um, there has to be a lot of movement all going in the same direction. Yeah, no kidding. And it begs the question, should they put a single out? Like, do they know it's Christmas? Like they did in 1984 ahead of Live Aid in 85. Would it be easier for those people just to collaborate on something and put it out that way, you know? Yeah, I think music fans would love that. In fact, Pink Floyd did that last year. They um, they worked with a Ukrainian singer who's pretty popular over there, um, and they had their very first actual Pink Floyd song, branded Pink Floyd, in over 20, 25 years. And it helped raise a lot of uh, awareness, and it hit number one on the U.K. charts. But like most things in this world, it fizzled out after a week or two. It wasn't like we're still – look – Live Aid was 1985. We're still talking about it. Yeah. The fact that that 
nothing really sticks anymore and that we're all kind of looking at this new shiny object. Um, I think the biggest fear of these organizers, if this event goes on, is what do you do the day after? Does the work really begin? afterwards and uh i think you know what you want to try to do is not be at 24 hours and then nobody's talking about it anymore and i think that's where that political pressure needs to be is continuing to always have it front of mind and center so a song could be really great i'd just be surprised if it lasts longer than 15 days or two weeks at the top of the charts anymore yeah no kidding no kidding eric always appreciate your insights my friend thank you for this Absolutely happy to do it with you. And yeah, if you need anything else, let me know. Sounds good. Have a good night, my friend. Thanks, Eric. That's Eric Alper, freelance music publicist. He's a host on SiriusXM, uh, music commentator, talking about this concert that's being floated around uh, for June 24th at Wembley Stadium. Uh, Sir Paul McCartney, Noel Gallagher, Adele, U2, Rolling Stones, Pink, they've all had invitations sent out. Will we see another Live Aid-style concert? I would love to see it, but will we?